Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks, to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, Today's episode is one I have been looking forward to tremendously. Uh, You know, in in, in the Soul Talk uh, podcast, I love to bring on guests that I respect, I learn from, I'm curious about want to dive deeper with. And I think today's episode is going to be another special one. Uh, I've been wanting to get my guest on for a while and everything finally synced up. Uh, Some of you may have heard of her. You may have read some of her books, Dying to Be Me, uh, Sensitive is the New Strong, Uh, What If This Is Heaven? Uh, And we're going to dive deep into all of these concepts. At age 42, she found a lump in her shoulder and was diagnosed with cancer of the lymphatic system, uh, otherwise known as lymphoma. And after suffering for four years, uh, she had a near-death experience and learned some huge lessons on how to love herself and and, uh, healed herself through that process. And so it's going to be a good one, folks. Get your pens and papers ready. Welcome to the conversation, Ms. Anita Morjani. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is, I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. You know, just for, for those that may not know of you and your work, I, I, I also am very curious to hear directly, just to set a bit of a context. And then there's a bunch of questions I, I would love to dive into, especially around healing and intuition and death and, and uh, some of the things you experienced there. But I, I would love to just get a sense of like, how did you, what, what was your path growing up? Uh, I mean, as a kid, as a child, what, what led to the, the journey of being a teacher and a best-selling author? Was there something <laughs> in your childhood? I mean, I'm always just curious and fascinated how people uh, got to be doing what they're doing. <laughs> I love that question. Um, so my childhood, looking back now, was extremely unique and interesting. And it's funny because when you are a child, you don't realize that you're in a unique situation. You kind of think everybody thinks the same way you do. But uh, the reason my situation was unique is because, so my parents are Indian. I am ethnically Indian. Mm. So my parents, um, although they, they spent the early part of their lives in India, they're both um, immigrants that moved on to other countries because of their business. In my dad's case, you know, my dad followed his father's business. My mom would live where her parents took her because of her dad's business. But anyway, um, I was born in Singapore and at the age of two, we moved to Hong Kong. Wow. So I grew up in Hong Kong, but um, my parents sent me to a British school where it was uh, basically a, a Christian or a Catholic school. I mean, we sang hymns every morning and, and, and all that. And all the kids were Western kids. You know, they were 
all British kids from England, and they were the children of the expatriate people mm. who lived in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong was a British colony, but predominantly occupied by Chinese people. So mm. basically, if I walked down the street, um, everybody, the shopkeepers, the cab drivers, everybody around me is Chinese. I go home, my family is ethnically Indian and they're speaking their Indian dialect. I go to school and everybody is British and we're speaking English. So I grew up speaking three languages simultaneously, immersed in three cultures wow. simultaneously. And, and the Chinese people are predominantly, they are Buddhists and Taoists. Um, and so they're, even their spiritual beliefs, everybody's spiritual beliefs are different. At school, it was Christianity. At home, it was my parents are Hindu and they would take me to the temple. And we tended to go to the temple on Monday evenings. And so I grew up in this very, very multicultural environment from the age of two, learning to speak three languages simultaneously. Um, Mm. And as a child, you don't think you are unusual or that your environment is unusual. Um, but looking back now, I realized that I was immersed in three different worlds. But the other thing that makes it interesting is that all my British friends only spoke English. Mm. All my Chinese friends and the kids in the neighborhood who were Chinese and the, and the people who worked in the stores and everybody, most of them only spoke Chinese and many of them spoke some English. And my Indian friends were immersed in the Hindu culture. So each one was immersed in one culture while I was immersed in all three, uh, equally in all three. And so I was like navigating between three cultures. And the interesting thing is that when you are watching, um, like, like, let's say if you're watching Chinese, the news on the Chinese channels, mm -hmm. and then you watch the news on the English channels, they're telling you different things. <laughs> <laughs> and and then what you're learning when you are with the Indian people, you're learning different things. And or it's almost like each culture is being conditioned to believe in completely different things. Mm. And they are unaware of what is going on in the other cultures or what the other cultures are absorbing or learning in that time. And... So it's like you live in three different worlds that mm -hmm. don't overlap. But I wasn't even aware I was doing this because I was a kid. <laughs> so as, as a kid, did you feel more connected to one culture or another culture? You know, my, fa my father's from Ghana, West Africa. My mother's Japanese. And I grew oh. up in I, and I grew up in London. <laughs> so, so you relate to what I'm saying. I yes, understand. It, it, it's, you it's understand. Rare, it, it's rare that I meet folks that kind of have that the dynamic. I'm just curious. Did you feel more connected to one culture, another culture? How did it feel inside of yourself as a kid uh, to to just be uh, kind of synchronizing with all these different cultures simultaneously? So as I grew into particularly like into my teenage years, I related more with the British culture mm. and I wanted to do what my British um, peers, my schoolmates were doing. I, I followed that 
pop culture in terms of pop music and in terms of um, wanting to, I wanted to study, like my parents uh, were, of course, being Indian, they wanted to groom me for an arranged marriage, but I didn't want an arranged marriage. I wanted to do what my school friends were doing. And so when I was 15, 16, 17, I wanted to go to college, to university, actually. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to have a career. Um, but they didn't want me to because it, at that time in our culture, um, a woman is not supposed to be too educated because it becomes harder for her to find a husband or so their belief goes. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right, right, right. And so tell me a bit about like spirituality. And I mean, I know you, you teach some, some beautiful things and, and I'm just curious about how that played out growing up and what led to this movement of you writing and teaching and inspiring people. So first of all, one of the things that's uh, really shaped my thinking, I mean, apart from having <laughs> died or almost died mm -hmm. later on, but, but, uh, but let's say one of the early things that's shaped my thinking is that there is no one single truth that is that fits everybody. There just isn't. People in different parts of the world from different cultures have different beliefs. And here I'm referring to spirituality. Like we cannot impose a one size fits all and and say that this is the one and only truth. And if you don't believe it, you're going to suffer in the afterlife. And um, so that was is one of the things that I, I learned because I've had people imposing that on me. And as a kid, all it does is cause confusion because if you have one culture um, saying to you that, or one religion saying to you that you're going to go to hell or you're not going to get to heaven if you don't, you know, get baptized or whatever it is, um, then immediately it causes confusion because it's like, oh my God, my parents, they're Hindus, they're not baptized, or what's going to happen to them? Are they going to go to hell? And it creates a lot of fear. And then it's like, but what about all these Buddhists and Taoists here who are, who are people that are my neighbors, my friends? And so no one, um, no one particular uh, uh, form of religion or, or spiritual belief is the true path. They are all just paths. And and we have to realize that and not impose our beliefs on other people. So that's shaped me quite a bit. Mm. Was there any confusion about like who you were growing up and as you went into your teens and a young adult, you know, like I, I'm a British, lot. I'm Singaporean, I'm Hong, from Hong Kong, I'm Indian, I'm, you know, yes. because I know for me growing up, I, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And for a moment Ex in my teens, I'm like, well, who am I? Who do I belong to? Okay, the, the Ghanaian people think I'm theirs and the Japanese people think I'm theirs, but I don't quite fit in. And they think I'm a foreigner over there, even though they want to claim me. And the Japanese people look at me like, well, you're not Japanese. And the British people are like, you're not British. And so for a moment, there was a, a confusion and I would adapt myself. And, and, and especially in my teens, I wasn't on one level, I was very sure of who I was as a sort of spiritual being, but as a human, it was it was quite challenging. So, oh, a hundred percent. Your expression and what was that like as a as a young person? 
You're speaking my language when you say that because that was 100% me. I never fit in in any one particular culture because I wasn't one culture. So when I was with Indian people, I didn't feel Indian enough and the Indian people didn't feel I was Indian enough. When I was with Chinese people, they would, um, you know, I spoke the language and everything and grew up there, but, uh, but I was never quite accepted as being Chinese. Um, when I was with the British people, I was never quite accepted as being mm -hmm. British because I'm not their color. I was brown. There I was amongst all these white kids and I'm brown, but um, yet you know, as I grew, English started to become my first language. It was the language that I would speak, read and write and think and dream in. Mm. And, and so it became my dominant language. And so it was interesting. I never fit in into any culture. Um, and of course, also, you know, being born in Singapore, the Singaporeans would say, you're Singaporean. But also, mm -hmm. I just, I never, I was a hodgepodge. And so growing up, it was actually challenging because I found myself being a bit of a chameleon and yes. I would shape myself. Yes. Exactly. And, yeah. and I would find even my accent would adapt to where I was or who mm -hmm. I was with. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing is it can be interpreted as being, uh, what's the word for it? Like, like shallow that, mm -hmm. Oh, you change like the wind and you change with whoever you're with, but it's not that I think it's a survival mechanism that kicks in mm -hmm. from the time you're a child where you're trying to fit in, you're trying to be accepted. You want people to like you. Mm -hmm. And so you adapt to every culture and, and most kids who grow up in their own culture, they're doing it anyway, but because there's only one culture, you don't notice it. But if you're in a multicultural environment, you're like adapting to the different things and, and you, you can almost feel that the way you're speaking and the words you're using are changing depending on which group you're with. Mm -hmm. So that was me growing up. And um, so I just want to fast forward a bit and oh. uh, there's so much I want to ask. So um, I, I read at 42, you find yep. a lump in your shoulder, diagnosed yep. with, with lymphoma. lymphoma. Um, what was that moment like? I mean, I guess, what, did you anticipate it? Was it a complete shock? And then what was that moment like? So, so let me tell you a little bit more then about the personality I was. Mm. I became a people pleaser. I think a lot of it to do with the fact that I never fit in. Mm. And so you try really hard. I was trying really hard to fit in. So my entire life, I have never, ever felt I fit in with anybody, anything. I never fit in, you know, my parents wanting me to have an arranged marriage. It just didn't feel right and blah, blah. Um, and then with Western culture, that felt right in my heart, but I wasn't, I didn't look like my Western peers. Um, so I never fit in that way. And so I found myself constantly just trying to fit in, trying to be liked, trying to fit in. And, um, I would give and give of myself to the people around me. I am, uh, was, you know, someone who was like a people pleaser, a doormat. And I think that the fact that I never fit in shaped me to become that way. Um, and so for me, it was almost like 
instinctual because I grew up doing this like survival because you want to fit in in a British school with white kids or you want to fit in with your parents. It was like a survival where you become really intuitive to the needs of other people so that they can like you. And I was extremely intuitive to the needs of other people, but I was not intuitive to my own needs because I didn't know who I was. I, I never figured out who I was, but I was so intuitive to everyone's needs. And so there I was pleasing everybody around me. My at best point, friend. At, the, at this mm-hmm. point, like, you know, in that zone, did, did you get married? Did you have kids? And like, what was- so I got married. At, so, so prior to that, I even um, agreed to my parents' request of having an arranged marriage. But three days before the wedding, I actually ran away. I felt I couldn't go through with it. And <laughs> uh, that caused a huge furor. It caused a lot of shame in my family and mm-hmm. caused a lot of shame in my fiance, then fiance's family. And so I had to live with that shame piled on that, oh my God, look at what I've done. I've made things even worse and blah, blah. And um, so, but then I did meet a wonderful man who is still my husband today. Um, I met him in my early thirties and then we got married. I was 35 uh, and we got engaged when I was 35. We married when I was 36 and he's a wonderful man. But what I found was that by that point, um, I really was this doormat people pleaser. And even with my husband, um, I was just constantly trying to please him. I had a, uh, so then at, and I, I didn't have kids. I don't have kids, Mm. but at age 40, my best friend was diagnosed with cancer and I found myself, um, going out of my way, trying to help her through her journey. So I never focused on my own life, my entire life until the, until I got diagnosed with cancer. Mm. I had never known who I was. I was literally a chameleon. I was literally a people pleaser. I was a doormat and I was hypersensitive to the needs of everybody around me. Um, and that was a conditioning I picked up from being in that space of like trying to please all these different cultures. And so when I got the diagnosis, on the one hand, there was this fear like, oh, my God. On the other hand, there was a feeling of, ah, now I get to focus on myself and take care of myself. Wow. Right. Mm. So it was funny because as a people pleaser, as someone who was so sensitive to everybody else's needs, it was like I never allowed myself to focus on my own needs or to focus on who I am. What is it that I want? Um, you know, who, what are my needs and mm. who am I as a result of this upbringing? I'd never even focused on it or thought of it. I was always preoccupied with trying to be there for everyone else and trying to please everybody around me to try and fit in. Mm. So it's almost as though at 42, when you got this diagnosis, I mean, was there some relief almost? like, like a, a slight relief that, yeah. oh, I now have a reason to say to everyone, say. I can't be there for, for you. I can't be there. I am dealing with a, you know, a crisis, an illness. And, mm. and, and the interesting thing is that in the past, any kind of 
um, small thing. For example, let's say my friend is going through cancer and I'm supporting her. If my life is falling apart in my head, it's like, oh, that's nothing compared to what she's doing, what she's going through. I have to be there for her. This was the first time I had something so big that I can't say, oh, what I'm going through is nothing compared to whatever, and I have to be there for them. It was like, oh, I was like, it was like the universe was telling me, no, now you have to focus on yourself and who you are. And I kind of got that message from the universe. I, I felt it that, oh, it's time for me to focus on me now. It's almost like it was a, in a strange way, a soul gift of, of, of sorts. Yeah. That yes. Kind of forced you to go inward then. And deal yes. with some, deep, some deeper core uh, patterns there. So, okay. Um, so now you have the diagnosis, four years with cancer. Yep. T t walk me th through a bit about that process. I mean, four years is quite a while. And how did you, I guess I'm so fascinated. How did you, what did you do? How did you function? How did you deal? Like, what? What was your process? Uh, because because a lot of people, when faced with, let's say, uh, an illness or cancer, uh, go into feeling disempowered and give up. And here you are, four years. Then you yep. have this experience, which I want to get to. But like, what did you do in those four years? Did you actively work on your healing? Did you do a protocol? I'm just curious. I did. I actively worked and, and I wasn't like sick for the entire four years. It was um, in the early part of it, I was still functioning as normal. And so when I was first diagnosed, diagnosed and then um, and then as it deteriorated, I did get better. And then again, it deteriorated again. Mm. So but um, but there but what happened is during the journey. So. My best friend was diagnosed, as I mentioned to you. And at the same time, m my husband's brother-in-law was also diagnosed. And interestingly, all three of us were the same age. But I watched the two of them go through um, all the, the conventional cancer treatments. You know, they went to the best hospitals mm -hmm. the, with the with the most expensive and best treatments that money can buy. And all I saw was that they were deteriorating. And from my wow. perspective and looking at it through my eyes, it almost looked like the treatment was worse than the disease. Mm. Because, because when my best friend was diagnosed, she looked absolutely fine. She, she looked <laughs> fine. We were out you know, having fun and all that. And then one day she just found herself feeling a little bit out of breath. And so she went to the doctor and, and I want to say here that she was a smoker. And so if it was someone like me, uh, I, I don't smoke, but if I was, that would be the first thing I would do would be to cut back on the, on the smoking. But anyway, um, so she found herself to be out of breath and she went to the doctor and the doctor found a tumor in her chest. And so then um, they, 
they said they had to surgically get in there to figure out whether it was it was cancerous. And so they did go in there and they found it was cancer. And they said it was a rare form, a very aggressive form. And they told her that she only had a 5% chance of survival. Oh my and goodness. so so the freaky thing for me is to see somebody, you know, at age, we were 40 at the time, to see some, my best friend at the age of 40, like going literally, uh, we were fine, we were laughing, we were playing, we we're doing all this. And then suddenly she's told she only has a 5% survival. And, but so anyway, basically, so her family agreed for her to have the most aggressive form of treatment that, that they could because they were like, no, she has to survive. She's got small children. So yes, so she had little children and so, so she said, uh, basically do whatever you need to do. As I watched her go through the treatments, uh, to me looking through my eyes, and I know this is probably controversial or provocative, so forgive me, but looking mm -hmm. through my eyes, it looked like the treatments were making her worse. Mm -hmm. um, with every treatment, with every radiation, with every chemotherapy, um, I saw her actually deteriorating, not improving. Mm. And um, I was so empathic towards her situation. I got drawn into her life and um, felt her fear and her fear of death and everything. Same thing with um, my husband's, uh, Danny's brother-in-law, diagnosed um, he seemed fine one day and then he fainted and then after, and then he, he was rushed to hospital and then they discovered he had a form of cancer and started treatments and he deteriorated. And within, I think it was six months, he was gone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so for me, the treatment seemed worse than the disease because even back then I had the belief that, um, that if my body manifested this, there must be a reason. I need to figure out the reason and I need to reverse it. So when I would try to say that to my friend who was going through the illness, um, she and her entire family um, did not believe, they thought all this kind of stuff that I was into was woo-woo because I had different beliefs. And so they were very, very much immersed in the medical paradigm. Yeah. yeah. And so, so basically, so when I was diagnosed, I felt, okay, I don't want that stuff because I, mm -hmm. I'm like watching, my friend was still alive, but she was deteriorating. My brother-in-law had passed away and I thought, wow. I don't want that stuff in my, in my body. That's what I was thinking in my head. And, uh, and so I started to try and do things naturally. I went to see a naturopath and, and uh, a mm -hmm. functional medicine doctor. Unfortunately, and particularly at that time, this was in 2002 and three, there is no organized um, place. It's a lot better now if, if you opt to treat illnesses in a more um, uh, natural or complementary way. There are more organized centers that can help you to work your way through this. But at that time, there wasn't. You have to figure it out yourself. That's the part that's really hard.
and you feel like you're on your own. So again, once again, I felt I was, uh, that, that I was different. I was again alone on this path of, oh my gosh, I, I don't fit in because I, I can't buy into this, the, yeah. the conventional treatment. And yet there is no other uh, body of healing that I can go towards that can really help me with the holistic treatment. I have to do the research myself and pick and choose and find things. And so that was really, really challenging for me. And because my environment, I was surrounded by people who were much, much more pro conventional Western medicine. And they were constantly saying to me that, uh, don't play with things like cancer. This is silly. What you're doing is really dumb. It's woo woo. It's not been proven. It's not, you just go, go see the oncologist, go do what actually I'd already seen the oncologist and I was diagnosed with stage two lymphoma, but they said, just go do the chemotherapy, go do the radiation, do what they're saying. And, uh, I found myself straddling the two worlds and feeling a lot of fear, feeling fear. If I went on my own and did it holistically because I didn't feel a lot of support in that area and feeling fear of doing it the conventional way because of what I was seeing happening around me. So I felt really, really scared and I removed myself from that environment and I went to India um, mm. for, for six months. So, so for a while, my health deteriorated while I was there in that environment in Hong Kong where I was right. feeling really scared. As it deteriorated, I realized I had to remove myself from mm. this environment. And that's when I took myself to India and immersed myself in Ayurveda. Mm. And so at least it was one system, one holistic system, yeah. um, no contradictions. I immersed myself in it. And when I was within that system, I was even told that don't think of yourself as having cancer. It's just an imbalance in your body. And then I was taught the different foods and different things. And I felt myself getting better wow. over a period of six months. I started to improve dramatically. Mm -hmm. And then when I felt that I'd got a handle on it and I'd learned what I should eat and so on. Um, I came back home to Hong Kong six months later. And that was when my friend had deteriorated to the point of she was like literally at death's door. Wow. And um, yeah, and, and I was again immersed in this world where I started to fear it. And people were saying to me that, um, that what have you been doing these last six months? Why haven't you gone to see an on? Why haven't you been to your oncologist? And you're crazy. Look at what, you know, wow. and, and in my head, what didn't make sense, it just didn't compute why they were thinking that the oncologist could help me when the oncologist couldn't help these other two people. Yeah. So, wow. Wow. yeah. So basically the fear came flooding back after I came back mm. to, to this environment in Hong Kong. And then my friend passed and, and, uh, I felt myself getting sicker again. Mm. And then I deteriorated to the point where I went into a coma Wow! and my organs shut down. And that's when the doctors said I was dying and it was end stage. And they said, Oh, you know, she should have come to us to have her treat her 
right from the beginning. And so, uh, and, and, and so, but, and, and so, but when I was on the other side, so, so, so basically, what, 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 yes. So, so you have, been, I just felt chills as you're speaking, by the way. And so oh. when, when, when you, so you went into a coma and yes. how long were you in the coma? And is that kind of the, what led to the near death experience while you were in the coma? Yes, absolutely. So how, how long were you in the coma? And then was there awareness of, okay, 15 days or was there any tracking of when the uh, yes. experience happened? So the coma, I was only in the coma for two days. Um, but, oh, what I want to backtrack a little bit is that um, prior to going in the coma, I had deteriorated so much that mm. by this point, my... Um, my body stopped absorbing nutrition. So the cancer spread like anything. Wow. It spread to the point where I had tumors the size of golf balls throughout my lymphatic system from the base of my skull all around my neck, under my arms and into my abdomen. Mm. Um, and my body stopped absorbing nutrition. So I weighed only about 85 pounds. My mm. lungs were filled with fluid. Um, and um, I couldn't walk because my muscles had atrophied because my body had stopped absorbing nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I knew that I was going to die anyway. And that's when I agreed for the doctors to do whatever they needed to do. So they administered chemotherapy, but they, they said it was too late. It's not going to save you anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so they told my family that I had come too late. So I continued to deteriorate because it was too late. And then I went into a coma and then, oh, and my organs shut down because it couldn't handle the toxic load. Wow. So my organs shut down and, uh, and I went into a coma and that was it. The, the doctors said that this was it. These were my final hours and I was mm. now dying. Mm. And um, while I was in the coma though, I left my body and I felt so incredibly light and free. And for the first time that I can ever recall, I'd never felt this in my life before. Wow. I felt like I had come home, that I was somewhere I belonged. And I felt surrounded by a feeling of just unconditional love, like pure unconditional love, nothing like I had ever felt in physical life before. It was like um, it was like the struggle was over and, um, and, and I felt like I was surrounded by other beings. One of them was my best friend who had passed away from cancer just, you know, a, a year or two prior. One, another one was my dad who had passed away 10 years prior to me having this experience. And there were other beings who I didn't recognize from this lifetime but they knew me and they were there to welcome me mm. and they wanted me to know that they had always been there for me and they had always loved me unconditionally and that I was always loved, but I just never realized it. And mm. it was a kind of love where I felt I didn't have to work at 
being worthy. I didn't have to worry about being worthy or deserving. I was just loved because I existed. And I had never felt that in physical life before. I had worked so hard at trying to prove myself. And now here I was on the other side because even through my life, I was always even trying to prove that I was worthy of a good afterlife. You know, whether it was in, in, in Hinduism, you want to have a life where you know that you're going to uh, have a good afterlife where you'll attain nirvana or you'll at least reincarnate somewhere in a better situation. You don't want a worse situation. So you're like trying to prove yourself that I'm worthy of a good afterlife. I mean, even going to Catholic school, um, it's like you need to prove yourself that, that you're worthy of going to heaven and, and not the other place. So, <laughs> so, so, but when I crossed over, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm welcomed with open arms. I'm being celebrated. Like all the work has been done here. Mm. It's like if there is a hell or a heaven, it's here. There, mm. it's like just un, um, just unconditional acceptance and love. Mm. And, mm. and it was just the most amazing feeling ever. And I've just felt, oh, I've come home. I can rest now. That's wow. what it felt like. Wow. Wow. So obviously you came back. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, a lot happened while I was there. And so I entered what I call this state of clarity where mm. I understood why I had got the cancer. Mm. I understood how all my fears through my life, my inability to really be who I am or always being, being there for other people and my fears had led me to getting the illness, which led me to then being there on that hospital bed dying. I feared everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What were some of the biggest, let's say, while you were in that zone, that state, the biggest lessons as to understanding, let's say, why you got the cancer and maybe for anyone else that is uh, dealing with illness that might help them understand uh, the, the, the root cause of their disease. So I realized that for me, the root cause was that I had never loved or valued myself. Never. Um, I had always put myself last. I was a giver. I never knew how to receive. I was an absolute giver. I was perceptive and intuitive to everybody else's needs, but never my own. I never followed my own intuition when it came to myself my own path, my own needs. Um, I was the shoulder that everybody cried on. Um, I was there to help everyone. And I was extremely fearful when it came to myself. I feared the afterlife. I feared disease. I feared the treatments of disease. Uh, Everything I did, I came at it from a place of fear. I feared not being good enough. I feared not, um, I feared failing. I feared illness. I feared not fitting in. Um, and even when I was supposedly taking care of my health, even, you know, when I said, I'm not going for the conventional treatment, I'm going to do it my way. 
when I would do it, it came from a place of fear, not a place of discovering who I am and I love myself and I want to live long and therefore I want to nourish and nurture myself. No, it wasn't from there. It was more like, oh my God, now I got cancer. How do I get rid of it? And I would research everything that was, um, that was, a. Uh, antioxidant, anti-cancer, and I changed my diet. Everything I did, changing my diet, eradicating the illness, came from a place of fear, fear of death, fear of illness. Um, you know, everything I did in life came from a fear of not being accepted. Even if I took a job, it was from a fear of not having enough money or a, a fear that a better job won't come along. What I realized on that side is that we are supposed to live a life of love, not a life of fear. In other words, do things because you love to do them, because they add to your life. And it starts with loving yourself. You have to know that you are worthy and love yourself in order to allow yourself to do that. Um, and it means taking on a job or work that is part of your uh, it, it, it's, it's part of your calling or it fulfills you, not because you fear not having enough money. And so it is a whole different way of thinking and feeling and believing. And that's what I learned when I was on that side. And I wanted to know, like, why did I have to die to learn this? Yes. I mean, that's, you know, because that's what, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, for those yeah. of us who aren't planning to die tomorrow or kind of induce a near-death experience, how do we how do we get to the place of moving through the fear and accessing this freedom and self-love without a near-death experience? Yes. So that's what it is that I teach. That's exactly <laughs> what I teach so that you don't have to die. Because I was like, oh my God, why did I have to die? Why didn't I know this before? But the message I got was that we are born knowing this, mm -hmm. but it gets conditioned out of us. Mm -hmm. And so the really what it is, is that we are intuitive beings. We are six sensory beings and we have to use the intu intuition for ourselves because when you use the intuition for yourself, you, you, um, you basically allow yourself to grow and be strong and healthy that you can then be there for other people. It's kind of like, you know, simplified. It's like when you're on a airline, they tell you to, put your own seat belt on belt, first yes. or your own mask on first before you help others. It's kind of like that. And so when somebody is um, sensitive and empathic, they tend to use it for other people and not themselves. They forget. Most people who are empathic don't know how to receive. They tend to give and give and they use it on others. Mm -hmm. And many people who are empathic have developed it because of circumstances they've it's heightened because of circumstances from their childhood like mm -hmm. like your your childhood and my childhood where it's heightened for those reasons where we kind of trained and honed it on using it on other for to 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 intuit other people's needs so that we can mold ourselves to be accepted by them but at no time do we use that empathy mm -hmm and that intuition on ourselves, like what do I need? And that's kind of what I'm here to remind people of. Because here's the thing I realized is that 
we are all facets of the divine. When we are without our bodies, which is what I was at that point, I was there as a as a um, a, an essence, a, a state of consciousness or a soul or a spirit or whatever we want to call it, I realized that when we're in that state, when we lose our bodies, we are all connected. We are all part of the same divine essence. Mm -hmm. We can call it divine, the divine essence. We can call it God. We can call it the universe. We can call it whatever we want. But every single one of us is a facet of this divine expressing ourselves through this physical body at this point in time when you don't value yourself when you don't love yourself when you don't honor yourself what you're doing is you are denying mm. the divine from expressing itself through you and what right do we have to deny god or the divine from expressing itself through us so for the person listening that might, you know, obviously, yes, love myself, importance of self-love, get it, Anita, right on. I but, but they are, <laughs> they say, yes, I understand. But the fact is, I, I hate myself, you know, and I understand I should love myself. And I know I need to love myself. And, it, and I read the books that love yourself, love yourself, it's important, but I just hate myself. You know, and, 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 and so on that emotional level, there's self-hatred. Is there a step that someone in that place can begin to make to move a bit more into self-loving? What can they do to begin making that shift? Beyond oh, there are, yes, the, there are so many steps. The first step, of course, is recognizing that you don't love yourself and you need to do something. So that's a big step already, mm -hmm. which is wonderful. Uh, the other step is to realize that you need to give yourself time. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh -huh. So, so, and here's a tip also about self-love is that the minute you get impatient and say, oh my God, why don't I love myself? Even that judging yourself and beating yourself up for not loving yourself is a, a lack of self-love. So the first step to self-love is to actually even accept where you are right now. Okay. I'm even showing a sign of loving myself by saying, okay, I don't love myself. In fact, mm -hmm. I hate myself, but I am going to accept this is where I am. I'm not going to judge it because a sign of a lack of self-love is judging everything about you. So mm -hmm. the first step is to stop judging yourself and just say, okay, this is where I am. I'm willing to make that first step and I'm not going to judge me for hating myself. Um, and then the bigger steps you can take is things like notice that um, you, you give and give of yourself, but that you're terrible at receiving. People who don't love themselves don't know how to receive. The minute someone gives you something, you don't feel you're worthy or deserving, you immediately start thinking, how can I repay them? Oh my God, they've given me something, it's a burden. Because you don't feel you're worthy of receiving. And so for you, it's a burden because you feel immediately you have to prove to them that you're worthy or that you have to repay them in some way so that they don't hold it against you. What you're actually doing though, when you do that, 
is that you are denying that person the pleasure of giving you a gift. You know, because people who are unable to receive, they're very good at giving, but you have to realize that there are other people around you who also want to be giving. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and so if, if, and imagine if everybody felt that way, that means every time you are giving and giving of yourself, you're actually burdening that person if they felt the way you do. So, so, the, so what I tell people is one of the first steps to self-love is learning to receive mm. and start to notice how you feel when somebody gives you a gift. And then just allow yourself to make the small shift of saying, thank you, I accept yeah. it, and allow yourself to receive it and enjoy it. And so that's the first step. And then another step is to actually do something for yourself every day that is pleasurable for yourself that does not benefit anyone else. Something mm -hmm. that you previously would have thought, oh, that's selfish. But someone who is um, who doesn't love themselves, they are so far on the selfless side of the scale yes. that they need to learn to be a little bit selfish to even just bring them to being healthy. But what about the notion that we sometimes say, you know, selfish is not spiritual. It's not, it's not holy. It's not, it's not a spiritual thing to be selfish. We should be selfless. Mother Teresa was selfless. Gandhi was selfless. Mandela so, was selfless. Can you speak to that? Uh, oh, gosh, I have conflict? so much to say about <laughs> that. <laughs> I was very selfless before I had the NDE, and look what it did to me. It got me cancer. Mm. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that people who are extremely selfless to the point where it is like a spiritual complex, you know, like extremely selfless. If you notice a pattern, if you look for mentors who are selfless to that point where they do not take care of themselves, mm -hmm. where you feel it's selfish to take care of yourself, you will notice that all of them die poor and destitute or sick. Mm -hmm. Is that what you want is my question. There is, you know, being healthy uh, so, so the thing is that the words self, selfless and selfish are very simplistic. And mm. if you put it on a scale, let's say there's a scale, and at one end of the scale you have selfless, on the other end of the scale you have selfish, um, there is a midpoint which a lot of people who are unable to receive, who are doormats, who are people pleasers, they are they don't even reach that midpoint that midpoint mm -hmm. is the healthy point where mm -hmm. you are able to recharge your own batteries so that you can be there for others um i always share that story of how i was there for everybody everybody because i felt it was selfless to give and selfish to receive mm -hmm. and what happened is the universe gave me cancer and in that moment, I felt, ah, now I can take care of myself. And it was only when I died did I realize that I can take care of myself without being sick. I didn't need an excuse of a disease, wow. but it was a gift the universe gave me because I had this misconstrued um, concept 
of what it meant to be selfless because I wanted to secure a good place in the afterlife. I wanted to not accumulate bad karma. I was very spiritual, um, mm. uh, but I was so misguided in my beliefs, so mm. misguided. And now I teach and write and speak about uh, how people who are overgivers, people who are empaths can be completely misguided even in their spiritual beliefs. Yeah. I speak I about it. how misguided we can be even about um, even, even about abundance, even about, you know, like there are people who feel it's selfish to even um, receive or make money when they're doing work from the heart. Can you, can, and, you speak, can you speak to that? Because a lot of I've, I hear a lot of folks talk about, yeah, if you're doing spiritual work, God's work, showing your gift, you should not make money uh, from that gift that's given freely from God. How can someone so, move through that uh, internal conflict or misconception? So here's the problem with that. If you cannot make money from doing work that is God's work. So basically, every single gift you have, you in, you know, in terms of whether you are an artist or you are an, a musician or you are an, an innate healer, you have the ability to help people through crisis, whatever gift you have is God's gift. It is God's work. If you cannot make enough money to sustain yourself and feed yourself and your family and live comfortably doing God's work, what happens? You have to then go and get a job that you consider is not God's work, which means it's not something that's innate or comes naturally to you. So you have to go and get work like that to put food on the table. You come home tired and, uh, and, and what time do you have left to do God's work? Wouldn't it be better if people were rewarded for doing God's work instead of being rewarded for not doing God's work? Isn't that why then we have so many businesses that are thriving, which actually exploit people and hire sweatshops and so on, and yet they're thriving while the people who are doing God's work are struggling to even put food on the table? That doesn't make sense to me. I think the people who do God's work, who actually pay, pay fair wages, who are conscious, who are out there um, making the word, world a better place, they should be rewarded more so that, they can, so that they can do more of what they do. We have it really skewed at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. I want to just shift it to, to, to healing because we kind of uh, we touched on, on this a little bit. Um, so here you are, you have this near-death experience, uh, cancer is, is, is gone. Um, for those that might be maybe facing a situation, a disease, a challenge, uh, incurable disease, uh, life-threatening illness, um, do you feel anyone can heal? I do. I, I, I actually do feel, although, okay, so two things. One is we all have to leave this planet at some point anyway. Yes, yes. We all have to leave and we should not feel that death is a failure. Mm. It is a transition. It's, there is nothing to fear. And having said that, I don't want people to lose their will to live. I, I don't want people mm. to kind of take their own life, but death is nothing to fear and we all have to leave anyway. So I want, I want to say that, but at the same time, if you are going through an illness, 
what I would say to you that, you know, I came out of it fully healed and I was like literally at death's door. In fact, I'd gone past the door of death. And if my body can heal, anybody's can. But the point is, you, what I would ask you to focus on, if you are dealing with an illness, focus on your reason for wanting to live. Mm. Get passionate about life. Don't focus on the illness. And it doesn't matter. To me, it doesn't matter whether you are going for holistic treatments or whether you are even going the conventional route. I'm not anti anything. The point is not the treatment the the point is not the physical treatment whatever treatment you choose choose the one that you feel supports you and and not the one that makes you feel fear so basically if you feel that conventional therapy is what makes you feel like your body is going to heal. If it resonates with you, if you feel, oh, I have this great oncologist, he knows that it's uh, his, that it's going to work and he's caught it early, whatever it is, go with it, go with it. If you feel that, um, that no, I want to do it holistically, I have great people to support me, go with it. The thing is, go with what supports you and do not... G- Uh, listen to naysayers once you found what supports you and do and follow that path because it is making you feel empowered, not because it is making you fear the disease. That is the wrong reason to do it. The wrong reason, the wrong kind of treatments are the ones that say you have to do this because otherwise this, this, this will happen to you. And they kind of And so you're following a fear-based path. No, it's about do this because it nourishes me. It's healing me. It's helping me. It's what I want to do. And many people do a combination of of, um, complementary as well as conventional. That's great too. But do it because it resonates with you. While you are doing the treatments, whatever the treatments, at the same time, go on a journey to find out why you are here and why you want to live. Get passionate about your purpose. Get passionate about why you want to have a long life here. And that is what will see you through, your passion for living, not your fear of dying. I really want to kind of reinforce like you really believe, because there might be some folks listening in and they're, they're, it's, you know, they're on the edge, you know, they're, they're, they're dying. And so you really believe that anyone can heal if they follow what you said, like, like, or, or, or I mean, because, because part of me wonders, well, is it possibly someone's destiny to die? I mean, where does, where does that come in as well? Or regardless of someone's diagnosis, if they have the will to live and they follow the path and get the right treatment and they work with themselves internally, they can heal themselves no matter what. That's kind of like what I'm curious about. Because it's very empowering what you're saying to, to heal. Yes. You can heal no matter what. Like, okay, I feel that. And so where does destiny play? Is that, you know, karma, destiny, how does that fit together? 
Okay, so that's a great question. So now, um, I so this is what I feel about death. We all have to go at some point anyway, mm-hmm. um, and many of us have. Um, so so basically, I do believe that there are a lot of people who go before their time mm. because they get very tired of uh, of the life that they are living here. They've gone so far off the track of who they want to be or who they came here to be, and then their body then manifests disease because they're so tired and they've gone so far off the track and it is not and and they didn't intend to die at this time but they've gone so far off the track and their body manifests disease and it gives them a way out like i could have chosen to stay on that side if i wanted to mm-hmm. i was given a choice and so if so 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 now let's talk about people who are going before their time because there are people who um like we all have um a time where we say that where where we say that um before we came here where we said okay we're going to fulfill this purpose and my intention is to live x number of years so we do have an intention when we come here that mm. my life is going to be long or my life is not going to be that long because i need because my death is also going to serve an impact yeah. do you see what i mean mm. so there are people with intentions where even their death is going to serve an impact and so their intention was not to live long maybe a child comes and lives for 5 years or 7 years and yeah. that was their intention before they came because it came to serve a purpose within a a family or within or it turned their parents into being teachers of certain types or that was the gift that child brought to that to that parent or those parents and so there is that destiny as well but but there are also so that destiny that intention is one thing but if you have come here with the intention of serving a purpose and living maybe 80 or 90 years but at age 40 or 50 you've gone so far off the rails mm. that you're like i'm tired i'm i uh, you know and your body feels it your soul feels it and it starts to manifest disease i think anybody who is at that point mm. definitely no matter how bad the disease is they can turn it around if they do the work they absolutely can turn it around if they do the work however if they go so far as to have a near death experience they may in that state say wow why would i go back <laughs> i can do more work from this side and to be honest with you i believe that's what happened to wayne dyer uh-huh. i believe that yeah, he went I, I was for his time ask, i was actually going to ask about you know certain gurus and teachers and you know that some of maybe like wayne dyer and just other folks that are in this field that speak about self love and healing spirituality and then they get cancer and then they die and like but wait a second you know and yeah. so yeah can you speak to that in terms of Wayne Dyer and 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 others that you don't have to reference I, any other names but any others that perhaps that can ref, uh, relate to 
So I believe that, uh, you know, when, when people do kind of go before their time, they, if they get a glimpse of what's waiting on the other side, many mm. of them may feel that, oh, in actuality, I've completed enough of a purpose on this side mm. to continue and make an even bigger impact while I'm on the other side. And they may choose to stay there. They, they really may. Um, because what can happen is even with a spiritual teacher, and again, I don't want to say any names, and this is yeah. not even necessarily Wayne Dyer, I'm just saying in generally, when you get immersed in this kind of work, um, sometimes what can happen is you can reach a point where you start to feel, um, um, uh, I don't, I don't know if saying backed into a corner is a good way of saying it, but you kind of feel you have to live up to mm. certain expectations that the public have for you. Mm. And you just want to go and relax and be human and, 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 and you feel so backed into the corner that, um, that, that you're, you, you start to get, um, disaligned with what you're teaching mm, mm. and then your body manifests illness and then maybe you you get a glimpse of what the other side is and you're like oh maybe i can teach in a bigger way from the other side because we don't stop when we cross over we don't stop being who we are what, 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 yeah, actually i never thought to ask you that but what happens when we i guess what happens when we die and let's say you don't come back and, you, and, and one says, you know what, I'm going to just keep going in this direction. Can you speak to what, what you sense happens like as we don't come back? What, where does our soul go? What happens to our soul? Uh, I, um, so although I didn't stay there very long, um, the sense I had is that because of the other souls who are around me helping me, the sense I had is that we continue on in the other side and we continue serving and uh, humanity. We actually continue serving and developing humanity and, and I still sense Wayne continuing to help and support me. For those who don't know, um, I traveled with him for four years. He was my mentor. He's the one that discovered my story and put me on the world stage. And, mm. um, and, and he was the one that introduced me to his audience. And so wow. I've been traveling and speaking since then. But uh, even after he passed, which was a real shock to me because we still had tours planned. He passed in mid 2015. Mm. I was booked on tours to travel with him all the way to the end of 2016. So it was like, um, so an entire year <laughs> wow. and a half of tours. And, and so of course, everything just got canceled, but it was like such a shock that, oh my God, one, he's there one day and he's yeah. gone the next. But every time I'm at a speaking event, at least definitely much more strongly for the first year or so, I actually felt his presence there as if he was speaking through me and guiding me and, and telling me where to put in a joke so the audience laughs or how to get the audience to warm up to me. And I still felt him speaking through me and helping me. Mm. So um, you, trigger, you trigger the question and, and maybe you can answer it, but I would love to hear your thoughts. You, you, you said that when you're on the other side, you know, let's say Wayne and other beings were there, right? To 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 speak to you, to show you, to 
to teach you in some way. And so the other yeah. beings welcomed you. I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I often feel, you know, my mother passed in 2016 and I feel her guidance constantly from the other side. I sometimes feel connected to certain gurus and teachers and beings from the other side. And so souls around, but how does this play into, let's say, reincarnation and, and this, this sort of reincarnation? So here I'm thinking, okay, Elvis is there, but if Elvis reincarnates <laughs> into, into someone else or you know, into the Dalai Lama, then how is he still welcoming me from the other side when his soul has now become, you know, uh, Anita Mojani or someone else? But he's, he's on the other side, but now he is, you know, uh, uh, Puff Daddy or he's become, you know, Oprah. And how, 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 does that make sense? How does that? How does yes, he, it does. So, so basically, um, we're, we are limited by the way we think of time. We think of time as linear, but when you're not in your body, time is actually not linear and you mm -hmm. actually can be in multiple, um, dimensions or multiple levels at the same time. So what you don't realize is, you know, like, well, let me go back to my own near-death experience. So when I was in that NDE state, now I believed in reincarnation in the typical linear time way mm. up until I crossed over. And I saw multiple lives in front of me and they were uh, like, I was able to see them all equally clearly, like I saw my future. I saw the future of this life. Should I choose to come back? I saw how it would pan out. I saw other lives, which I interpreted as past lives, but I saw them all um, like in, as though it, they existed simultaneously. To me, seeing each one was equally clear. So mm -hmm. there was one that was like, oh, this is this life if I choose to come back. And then, oh, and this is this life. If I don't come back and I could see that my husband was not able to fulfill his purpose if I didn't come back because his purpose was linked with mine. So there were all these different scenarios. And, and then there was, you know, a, a life which I interpreted as a past life where of why my husband and I, why Danny and I are so close to each other. We knew each other and we mm -hmm. had made the choice to come back into this life together and fulfill this. And it was like, oh, and I haven't fulfilled it yet. So here's a future of me not coming back and here's a future of me coming back. And so basically, I don't see reincarnation as linear anymore. I don't see karma the same way as I used to. It's mm. shifted my beliefs in all of these things. And all of these things, um, in fact, have you read my book, Dying to Be Me? Because if you haven't, I'd love to send you a copy. Yes, please do. Please do. But I've, I've listened was, to you a lot and, you know, your, your story and your talks. And so I feel like I have, but I haven't read the entire book. Yes. Yeah. And there I speak exactly about this, about time not being linear mm. Mm. and how it, when we're not in our bodies, it feels as if all of time exists all at once. It's like I could see all the lives that I have been through and it doesn't happen in a linear fashion. It's not like if I do something bad in this life, it's going to, I'm going to get mm. the bad karma in the next life. No, it's part of my experience when I'm on that side what was really interesting is that even if I did something really bad 
in this life. Mm-hmm. All I felt for myself was compassion, compassion and love for being in the position to for, for being backed into a corner and being in that position to do something bad because none of us come into this world wanting to do something bad. None of us come mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. wanting to harm another. The unconditional love from that perspective is incredible. It's like you wow. could look at a murderer and feel compassion for the murderer, for the murderer. So you feel compassion for the person who's murdered, but the one who's murdered is fine. They've crossed over, they're great. You feel compassion for their family, for the pain they're going through, but you also feel compassion for the murderer whose mm-hmm. life has gone, gone so off the rails mm-hmm. that he has never, he or she has never experienced love to the, um, um, And it's because they've never experienced that level of love and belonging that their lives have gone in the direction to make them do something like that. And you feel, wow, I have so much love and compassion for you, so much so that I wish I could transfer this love to you so that you would never have had to do what you did. That's how Mm. you feel even about the worst criminals when you are in that state. Love it. Okay, so you're you're stirring some questions, Anita. So now I want to like just for a moment uh, just go down this this topic then of karma because I guess two questions in one. You said your idea of karma shifted, and I know you just started touching on that, but I would like you to go a bit deeper into that because there is this notion of oh shit, if I if I do bad things now, then it's gonna it's gonna affect me in the next life, and and. Uh oh, and, and and God's judging me, and karma's going to come back and get me. And so, I, where where is then that understanding or line of, well, then why not just go rubber bank now? If if it, if it's just unconditional love, right? Why not, why don't I just go rubber bank and just be you know go live a life? Or what's going to stop me from killing someone now? If none of it matters, it's all it's all love. It's all unconditional love. Is there any? Like there's a nuance there. I want you to try to maybe explain okay. the karma part. And then I don't want to say the morality part, but the integrity part. Like how, how does one then live their life? if just, it's all love. It's all good. So, so there's a couple of things. One is the, the reason why we have rules and laws and jails and all here is to prevent people from uh, doing things like that. It is mm-hmm. to prevent them. So there's that. But so, so let's, so let's say, you know, so there's that prevention. It's like, oh, I better not rob a bank because if I get caught, I'll go to jail, blah, blah, blah. So, so let's put that aside and let's take the spirituality part. Mm. Like, you know, it's like, oh, if I can get away with it, uh, why don't I do it? There's no karma on the other side. So here's my question to people. Is the only reason that you are good and empathic because you won't get punished on the other side, then that is not good and empathic. Then you are not empathic. You are not someone who's compassionate for other people. There is something wrong in a society where the only reason why you are kind to other people and you care for other people and you don't steal from them because you don't want them to be without, the only reason you do that is because of karmic retribution. 
that isn't saying much for us as a human race. We have a long way to go if that is the only thing that keeps us on the straight and narrow. That's what I found out on the other side. I found out that I don't need there to be karma to be a good person. I don't need it. And that's what it means to really be a spiritual person. Mm. I used to think that we need those things and follow those rules, those spiritual laws to be spiritual. Now I realize, no, to be truly spiritual means to just love for love's sake. And it doesn't matter if there's retribution or no retribution. That doesn't change who I am. I am love and therefore that's all I bring to other people. And because it gives me pleasure to do so, I don't care if there's retribution or no retribution. I am not going to exploit another person because I am compassionate towards them. I love that. Loving for love's sake. Like that yes. is spirituality in, in, in one sentence. Loving for love's sake because love is what's real. And, yes. And, and, and so from your understanding, how does the karma part work? Because you said that completely shifted. Does, does it carry on to another life? Does it not? You know, because no, it does say, not. We hear people say, "Oh, it's just my karma from what I did. I killed, I killed this person's, you know, cat in a past life, so they're doing something to me <laughs> in this life, and and it's just my, or it's just my karma to be poor in this life. It's just my karma." So nowadays, I tend to use the word karma more like um, as in the way it's used in pop culture. I don't take it seriously, seriously. In, the in, the, in the spiritual sense. Like, you know, I think sometimes if uh, sometimes in a playful way, like if I'm making fun of a friend and then she has an opportunity to get back at me and she's like touche and I'm like, oh, karma's a bitch, you know, so it's mm. more like a, but I don't really, so to be honest, I, I no longer fear karma because I feel <laughs> that uh, all we have to do is learn to just um, be love, share love. And uh, yeah, just be love, share love, and love for love's sake. And you don't even need to think about karma. That's I it. it. I love it. Love for love's sake. Two final questions, Anita. This has been a beautiful conversation so far. Um, really loving just all of your wisdom and what you're sharing. Um, you know, last year, I think with the pandemic and COVID, a lot of folks have been, I think the, this theme of death has been, uh, very present for humanity uh, on a global level, death, dying, uh, pandemic, disease. And is for those that might be feeling that fear of death, I know you, you, you shared some things, but for those that might be feeling the fear of death, can you just give a little guidance as to what they can maybe begin doing to, to, to just move through that fear without having yes. to Yes, absolutely. So when you fear death, it means your focus is on death. And then what happens is that it colors everything you do. Um, what I would say is to shift your focus to start to develop a passion for living. Mm. When you fear death, it means that your life has um, no meaning. You have no reason uh, like there's nothing in life that is inviting or calling you. And so I would say, again, it is about 
developing a passion, like ask yourself questions like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Um, uh, why am I here? What is my purpose? What, what do I think I came here with the intention of accomplishing or being or doing and start to go on an inner journey to explore why you want to be alive. And once your focus go, shifts to the joy of being alive, you stop fearing death. Yeah. The joy of being alive, I love it. Uh, Amita, if, there were, if you were just to reflect back on your life and you know, relationships and career and everything you've lived, ups and downs, if you were to reflect on the three most important uh, life lessons, and obviously you've shared a lot today, but if, the, if you were to reflect on the three most important life lessons that you've learned uh, in this incarnation and through your near-death experience, that you feel if you could only share these three keys with, let's say, the next generation of children and grandchildren that would evolve their souls the most, uh, I would love to just hear your three keys. Wow. Um, number one is love is the solution to every problem in the world every problem without exception. And that includes self-love, like mm. never forget to love yourself in that equation of love. And so even when it comes to your own health, your own joy, the more you love yourself, the more that you will feel passion for life. And, and the more love you have, the more you can heal the world. So love is really the solution to every problem in the world. Um, that would be number one. Um, number two is that um, most fears are not real and most problems in the world are caused by fear. And and so one of the lessons, one of the things I love to teach people is that whenever you're feeling fear, um, ask yourself what you would, instead of focusing on the fear, because we tend to focus on the fear, ask yourself what you would rather see instead. So when you're feeling fear, it means the situation you're in is not ideal and that's why you're feeling fear. So ask yourself, what would I rather see instead? What is the situation I wanna see that would make me stop feeling fear? Now focus on that situation and create the steps on how to get there. So that's number two. Two, got it. Yeah, and number three is don't take life so seriously. Play more, laugh more, eat chocolate. Um, you know, uh, yeah, stop being so dog dogmatic about everything. We, we're dogmatic about health, about religion and spirituality, yeah, yeah. about food. People are dogmatic, like you shouldn't eat this, you should eat this, this is bad. Stop being so dogmatic, lighten up, live, laugh, dance, play. Mm. And to me, that is spirituality, being able to laugh and love. I love it. Being able to laugh and laugh. Folks, you heard the three keys from the amazing Anita Mojani. It's been, Anita, I have so loved this conversation and uh, I know everyone listening in has received so much also and I've taken so many notes and you are such a blessing. You know, I'm, I personally am so glad you came back to share your love and your wisdom and 
and inspiration with us all. What's the best way people can find out about you and your work and connect with you more? I I want everyone to, to just, you know, soak up your wisdom. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. So I have a website called anitamorjani.com. That's A-N-I-T-A-M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I.com. And I've, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, all the social media. I have a YouTube channel with lots of videos. I have a membership platform at the moment. We've paused on taking new members, um, but we will reopen in the summer. Um, and the membership platform is called Anita Morjani Sanctuary.com. And, uh, also, I have, uh, yes, yeah, so as I said, I have a YouTube channel with tons of videos, but I also have several books out. Uh, my first one is Dying to Be Me, mm. which is about the near-death experience. My second one is called What If This Is Heaven, which is where mm-hmm. I teach people to live from a place of love instead of a place of fear. Um, and I realized that heaven and hell is right here. It's not when we cross over. Mm. Um And the third book is called Sensitive is the New Strong. And it really is about embracing being sensitive and being an empath and embracing compassion and valuing those and seeing those traits as strengths instead of valuing traits like ruthlessness and so on, which is what our paradigm tends to do. And we tend to see those traits as strengths. It's about changing the metrics of what it means to be strong if we really want to um, continue to evolve as a human race. Love it. Sensitive is the new strong. Wow, we're going to have yes. to have you back on to explore that theme. That's a whole nother theme that I think would be really powerful. So whenever you're ready, we'll bring you I back. would love to. Oh, I would love to. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that one. Beautiful. Folks, you heard it. Uh, we'll put all of uh, Anita's links in the show notes. Um, check out her books. It's going to be amazing. What If This Was Heaven? Uh, dying to be me and sensitive is the new strong uh, check out all of her amazing work go to her website anitamorjani.com explore be inspired uh, be in touch with her she as you can tell is an amazing soul and folks do me a, do me a favor everyone uh, share this episode with everyone that you love uh, i think many folks will be inspired by today and send me an email kooplaxon at kooplaxon.com i would love to hear your key takeaways Uh, and how today's episode has impacted your life. Remember, love is the solution to every problem. Love now, everyone. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.kooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at kooplaxon.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.